Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where we interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. Episode 2. If you're still with us, it must mean we're doing something right. So let's try and keep the streak going, shall we? Now, I won't lie to you, it's a tough time we're living in. Between all these COVID restrictions, Trump denying the election, Brexit negotiations going into the bin, postgraduate nightmares about trust and property law, you know the ones I'm talking about. Sometimes I wish I had a rocket ship, you know, just to go off to another planet and wait for all this to blow over. Luckily, today's episode is all about that outer space. We sit down with Bartu Kaliagasi, a law graduate turned space innovation analyst who's worked from private equity to intergovernmental organization to NGO in all things space. In this episode, we discuss Bartu's journey from the black letter law to the dynamic beyond, the transferable skills his legal mind has aided him in the space economy, and how space is as much about learning what's out there as it is learning more about the planet we live on. So, sit back Relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. All right, Bartu, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. How are you doing today? Good, thanks. My pleasure. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So obviously, Bartu, you and I go kind of way, way back, uh, back <laughs> to high school days. But uh, for the audiences that are listening, why don't you kind of introduce yourself? Right. Yeah. So um, I am originally from Brussels, uh, but my family is also uh, has a background from Istanbul and Turkey. And I studied law at UCL, did a few things after that. And now I'm working in another space. Yeah, exactly. You've gone from law student to, to spaceman almost. All right? That's right. What is your innovation analyst? Am I, am I correct in saying that? Yeah. So I'm an innovation analyst at uh, what we call ESA Space Solutions. Why don't we start with there, kind of, you know, law student to spaceman. Why did you want to study law in the first place? Yeah, good question. Well, I guess, you know, throughout my, my childhood, I was always a little more interested in the humanities, the social sciences even though I did have uh, some fascination for, you know, the cosmos and beauty of nature and so on as well, I always found myself more veering towards, oh, you know, economics, business, politics, philosophy, all these fields that, that involve the human dimension. And so law seemed like a pretty good way of, of having this convergence of all those areas. And, you know, I very much see it as more or less the framework which allows society to function. Uh, you know, I, I was observing law as this kind of, this thing that underpins all the activities in our lives um, whether we're talking about you know, the constitution of a country or human rights or environmental protection, which is uh, something that's very dear to me, um, or even uh, innovation processes, things like patents and so on. And so I wanted to explore that a little more and be able to, uh, to kind of put all these uh, areas together um, and also have a bit of a philosophy inside it as well. Fantastic. But then at what point did you realize that the corporate law life wasn't for you? Because I mean, we've been talking about this and we both agree that from day one, you step into law school. It's always about the solicitor training contract or the barrister route. What made you say, you know, this ain't for me. I'm going on my own path. Yeah, it very much is like that. I think I always had a suspicion, even while I applied to law, uh, that I might not end up taking, you know, the solicitor route or the barrister route necessarily. 
but it was great to have that as like an option. It was, you know, a, a fantastic door to open, a great alternative to go into if I decided uh, that, you know, I had a passion for it. But I guess, you know, the main the main time in which I decided, okay, this is not necessarily for me was when I did my internship, my vacation scheme. And that's, you know, that's the whole point of it is to get this experience of uh, more or less what it's like to be working uh, in a law firm, the day-to-day actual activities, not, you know, just the taglines that you see in marketing materials. What do you do, you know, uh, in in your day uh, as a lawyer? And so it didn't really seem exactly like the kind of thing that scratched all my interests. So I decided, you know, let me go more towards the areas that I'm already interested in, which involve more innovation and a slightly bigger picture look at where we're heading towards as a civilization. And so space for me was that really fascinating thing that I had since I was a child. And so eventually I ended towards that. But, you know, there were many steps in between that maybe we can go through as well. Yeah, no, you're just talking about those steps as well. I mean, I know very little about space apart from the moon and the stars and some of the planets. But (laughs) you think of uh, somebody who studies space and you think about physicists, engineers, but obviously you had your, your LLB degree. And then you did a master's in technology systems after that. So yeah. Did you feel that there was a big, a big learning curve for you to get into this space? space? <laughs> yeah, it was, there was definitely some progression to be had. I think more or less it, it really started, the shift really started when I started taking optional modules in my third year. And I'm very grateful for that because that kind of opened me up to being able to study some university level courses in other areas. And so I actually studied a few things at LSE, including philosophy of space and time and technology management. And I was also at the time getting involved in the UCL Entrepreneur Society. And at the UCL Entrepreneur Society, we were focused, you know, on startups, venture capital, the innovation ecosystem in general. And that really made me think, you know, with with a law background, I don't necessarily need to go and practice law. I can use that skill set in the innovation ecosystem. I can become Uh, maybe an investor or a technology analyst of some sort. Um, And so then I I took it upon myself to maybe get a little more familiar with these areas. And so I took some classes actually in in astrophysics at some point. And I also applied for for jobs outside of law. And that's where I came across uh, this fund called Seraphim Capital. And this fund was just launched exactly, you know, right in time for me. It was launched the year that I was applying to jobs. And it's, and it's the world's first fund that's focused specifically on space startups, on space technology startups. And so, you know, really the stars aligned, let's say. And, um, <laughs> and so I got introduced to this entire uh, emerging new space economy. And, you know, all the possibilities kind of opened up in front of my eyes. And I decided, okay, let's, let's pursue this path. Let's see where it goes. If I ever want to go back towards the law pathway, I can always do that. I have my LLB, great foundation to have. But, you know, let, let's see where this leads. And so, you know, I worked at Seraphim and then eventually I found uh, the European Space Agency's opportunities. And I had always been a huge, you know, admirer of the space agency, of the European project, of its vision to bring humanity together, to work, to expand our civilization beyond the earth and so on. Always loved that. But I wasn't sure, as you said, whether I needed to have a background in physics, engineering and so on to get involved in those things. And it turns out that you don't really need that. So they did have one requirement and that requirement was that... Uh, you had to have studied an MSc, so a master's in science. And, you know, their guideline was, you know, it has to be relatively technical. So it can't just be like an MSc in, you know, business psychology or something. And so I, I looked at my options and, and actually I found that UCL had the perfect degree. And as you mentioned, that was the MSc in uh, technology management and technology systems. And this really was a huge turning point for me because that opened up my eyes to this systems perspective of seeing things, which they call systems thinking. The ability to see physical, environmental, economic, technological, and social landscapes as interacting systems with emergent properties and with different layers, 
different contexts. And that really got me even more interested in the intersection between technology and society. And that's when I realized, you know, there's this space between space and innovation. And, you know, I've already got this experience at Seraphim. Why don't I go full in and just apply to the European Space Agency? And so I did. That's fascinating. And uh, there are a lot of things there that I want to unpack. But first, I think it's the last one about technology systems, your MSc, and the intersectionality between technology and, and society. Do you see the parallel with what you studied during your LLB in terms of the intersectionality and kind of the systematic thinking that you approach these issues? Uh, yeah, I would say so to some extent. So for some modules in law, it was more textual, straightforward, more just uh, learning what is there. But for some others, which I really enjoyed, like contract law, environmental law, uh, EU law, there were a lot of thematic areas which were more um, intersectional, more interdisciplinary, where you had to take into account economic interests and social interests and environmental interests and how to balance them. Um, and how to think across them, how to use philosophical models, the logical models, which allow you to approach these things as objectively as possible, while keeping into account that we are humans operating in human societies with our own values and our own preferences. For example, I, I wrote my EU law dissertation in my third year on what's called regulatory globalization. And this was at the time right after Brexit, which was not the best time to be studying EU law, but also a very interesting one, <laughs> paradoxically. And so, you know, this was a dissertation on what's essentially called the Brussels effect, which I'm sure we, we both like the sound of. And this is, you know, this describes the way in which <laughs> the EU externalizes its values and its standards onto the rest of the world just by regulating its own single market. So we're talking labor regulations, product standards, environmental regulations. And this, of course, involves so many different disciplines. You have to have an understanding of all of the different systems, all the layers. And so, you know, thinking about the world and thinking about society in this way certainly got me prepared to be working at, a, at an intersectional, interdisciplinary field uh, like space and innovation. Going into the work in itself, you started at Seraphim VC Fund. What is it that you were doing there? Analyzing space startups. And what was that like? I mean, obviously, space startup isn't like a app startup. They don't just show you a mock-up design and say, this is the working app. I imagine there it's more like, give me a hundred million and so I can just shoot this satellite up into space and let's see if it works. Yeah, you're honestly not that far off. <laughs> um, yeah, so the work at Seraphim was fascinating. It was I was exposed to an entirely new type of work that I didn't even know existed beforehand. And so my day-to-day -day job mostly consisted of reviewing all of the applications of startups that were approaching us, looking for funding, and trying to analyze whether their business models made sense, whether their technologies were viable whether they had actually proven to us to some extent that this was something that we should invest in, that we should take you know, the massive risk on. And that involved a lot of due diligence. That involved a lot of validation because you know, as, as, as you kind of pointed out, these aren't app startups. These are very highly complicated engineering projects, essentially. And this, the team at Seraphim was not all aerospace engineers. You know, I, I had a law background. One of our colleagues had a business. Another was a chemist, essentially, a chemical engineer. Um, and so we each had you know, bits and pieces. I, I knew more of the regulatory side and so on, but none of us were experts in space technologies. And so a lot of our work relied on validation, on communicating with industry partners, with experts who are familiar with these uh, areas, and trying to get an understanding of how viable the technology are. You know, oh, this startup came to me with this idea to like shoot a rocket from like a waterborne platform. What do you think about this? You approach like Airbus and you ask them, uh, you know, is this new design for a rocket engine uh, viable in your opinion? Would you be interested in it commercially? Is this something that you think that the market uh, is, is ready for? And all of these questions, which form the process of due diligence, 
um, slowly built up a picture of whether or not any given startup was investment worthy. And then the other parts of my work was doing general research on a new space ecosystem, trying to map out what the different layers are, what the different technology trends are, and trying to get an idea, a bit of a prediction of what the future of this market is, where we might want to place our bets for which technologies are going to be enabling really future value, driving the future value of growth and progress in this area. That's fantastic. And especially uh, different stakeholder communication that you have with all these different industry players, being part of a rising industry. Now, you also said that the opportunity came about to apply to the European Space Agency and you really believed in that project. Elaborate a bit on that kind of, you know, what is it that attracted you to the European Space Agency and how was that shift from going from obviously kind of the private sector, so to speak, into kind of a more public body? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, actually, because, you know, the the difference between Seraphim and ESA might not seem very significant. They're both space, startups, innovation. But as you pointed out, really... Uh, at the vision level, at the project level, there is there is a fundamental difference. It's the private sector versus the public sector. At Seraphim, we were trying to identify uh, you know the streams of innovation such that we could return the greatest profits to our investors, to our uh, shareholders, and you know that did involve also to some extent improving society by helping the technologies that we want to achieve to progress. But ESA really is a whole other ballgame because. We're talking about a continental vision, an intergovernmental, international project of cooperation to advance not just one set of shareholders, one economy, one society, but all of humanity into you know, this, this adventure that we're going on to expand into space. And for me, space is really, as far as that goes, the greatest mission that you can have because I see it as it's a new domain of existence for us. It's like a whole new context for us. And within this context... We can have all the things that exist on Earth. We can have institutions, we can have infrastructure, we can have travel, tourism, entire new cultures being created, arts, poetry. And so it's very exciting. And being at the forefront of the organization that is laying out the roadmap for you know, the strategies for how we want to achieve this is for me very exciting. And so how did your day-to-day job change given that the vision was changed? Were you still doing the same thing, kind of reviewing startup applications, looking at and talking with industry stakeholders, or, or how, how did that transform? So a lot of the skills were very transferable, and a lot of the work was similar at the analytic level, let's say. But in terms of the purpose behind it, at ESA, our main objective is to advance the UN's sustainable development goals, the SDGs. And so I think this is really the fundamental difference between private and public is that the public sector is working on an entirely different set of indicators for what they believe to be successful. And of course, you know, you can't fault the private sector for not doing that because they are operating within the the scope of innovation. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. But I really like this focus on sustainability, on sustainable development, because we're talking about using space technologies like satellites for a vast array of purposes, including Earth observation, to monitor ecosystems, deforestation, infrastructure, urban mobility, all of these different areas that help vulnerable societies and environments by collecting data and producing insights uh, through analytics for, for example, uh, governments to make better decisions, to have more informed policymaking and so on. And so this focus on the SDGs is really the main difference um, in my day-to-day work is that we are more likely to be approaching companies that might not be 
the most profitable, the most disruptive, innovative in the market, but that are really doing genuinely good things. Even if it's something as small as beehive monitoring or air filtration systems to, to help people have cleaner air in their offices, for example, it's really nice to be part of something that's like little by little improving human lives on earth by making use of space, which is actually something that not a lot of people think about when they think of space. Yeah. And just on that point, I mean, you know, right now we're, we're in a global pandemic. COVID-19 is striking the economy quite badly and has a lot of people concerned with public health. What effect do you think that has on the space economy? Because obviously, you know, a lay person like myself, without talking to you, might think, why would we spend so much money into trying to get into space when we've got all this trouble down here to worry about? So there's a few facets to this. I mean, if you look just at the direct effect, the space economy is being impacted quite similarly to others. You know, startups which have short cash runway are going to have some financial difficulties. Investment might slow down a little bit uh, in this quarter, although not that significantly because space is, after all, more of a medium-term, long-term investment uh, than something that you want to immediately get results on in six to 12 months. So that's the economic part. There are mechanisms to deal with it. At ESA, we have programs that, that help to support startups like our business incubation and business applications programs. So, you know, hopefully most of the promising space companies will get through these tough times economically. But in terms of why invest in space when we are faced with all these other crises, uh, there are actually many really good reasons. So, you know, I, have the, I get the same question with people who are worried about climate change, like, oh, you know, wh- while the earth um, is getting ravaged by uh, environmental change? Why are we focusing on sending people out to space? Why are we trying to escape to another planet? And that's really not the goal at all. So first of all, the amount of spin-off technologies that are generated from investment into space is just immense. You have things from the ISS like air circulation, water generation, vertical farming, insect farming. You have all these technologies that you normally wouldn't really focus on and test on Earth being developed for space and then being spun back out, which we call technology transfer um, for Earth applications. At the same time, you have all the direct benefits. So the only way we can actually track climate change and the only way we can actually track even the spread of COVID properly is by using satellites to get that big picture perspective of the Earth, to be able to map it out, observe the flow of airplanes, cars going from place to place. Why are we getting so much transmission in these regions? Oh, there's a lot of tourism happening and so on. And this is all enabled by space. And people take this for granted. People think, of course, we'll be able to see it. You know, it's our planet. But you can only do that with a healthy space industry, with a lot of satellites up there, and with all the initiatives and the programs to be doing that. And so at ESA Space Solutions, uh, we've actually launched several initiatives just to deal with the COVID crisis. Um, So first, we launched one to deal with the pandemic itself, to help for things like digital health platforms, remote working solutions, or telemedicine, being able to help people from a distance, people who are stuck in rural areas who might be affected by the pandemic. And then we just recently released another call for for funding for post-COVID recovery. What services can we provide to help communities recover faster? Maybe they need better urban logistics. Maybe they need better contact tracing or crowd management solutions, etc. And there's a lot that space can do there because when we talk about space, we're not just talking about rockets and not even just um, Earth observation. We're also talking about GPS, GNF, um, anywhere at any time without having to depend on cellular networks or broadband connection. So really, there's all of these facets to how space improves lives on Earth. And no matter what crisis we are facing down on the surface, I think there's always a way for space to help us make that better. That's fascinating, especially how you've demonstrated there that space isn't so much just about the exploration of of what's out there, but also helping us better understand what's down here and how to help our planet. That's right. 
you're obviously quite passionate about space and what it can do and ESA's vision. Have you been able to see or, or feel the impact that your work has been doing? Do you feel that your work has contributed to this larger vision? Uh, yeah, I do think so. I mean, I'm only really at the beginning of my journey. I've been working for two, three years now. So it is always difficult to feel like you're having a huge impact um, when you're, you know, at an analyst level, at a trainee level. But I've been, you know, directly involved in supporting the management of our network. Uh, we have a network across Europe, across 22 member states. So we're dealing with over 100 people, managing incubation centers, managing funding programs, managing technology transfer programs, and really facilitating the management and the operation of all of this has a huge impact. And you can see this impact immediately in our impact reports, uh, where we track which SDGs, which sustainable development goals are being affected by uh, the projects that we fund. We track the return on investment. And for every euro that's invested in our program, something like six to seven times that is returned to the European economy. So that is already incredible to see. And actually, the teams at ESA are pretty small. When you think of European institutions, people have this conception that it's like a massive bureaucracy, thousands and thousands of people in offices. But ESA Space Solutions itself is run by like 20, 25, maximum 30 people if you really stretch it out to every single officer. And the team that I'm in, which is managing the business incubation centers and technology transfer and so on, is only around eight people. So, you know, when you're one of those handful of people managing an entire network across Europe, yeah, it really does feel very fulfilling and you can almost directly see the impact of what you're having. Now, moving on to the future, I'd like to see that a little more directly. So I'm actually thinking of looking to getting involved in space policy and space governance a little more, you know, looking to use also my law background, my understanding of systems and policies to affect direct change on the strategies that we use, the international, the global kind of governance systems that we have for how we will be expanding into space, how we will be setting up new space stations, you know, setting up a moon village, going to Mars and beyond as well one day. And so maybe that will have a little more of a direct impact. But I think the innovation route is one where you can have a lot of impact. And it's one where people without really having like an engineering background can get involved and have a very fulfilling career, I think. If you could pinpoint the one most fulfilling moment thus far on your space journey, let's say, what would, what would that be? Oh, you'll have to give me a while to think about this. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. I think for me, probably the most fulfilling point in time throughout this brief journey that I've had in the space industry was when the map that I designed for Seraphim, which was called the Seraphim Space Tech Map, which essentially gave an overview of the entire new space economy, including all of the startups from you know the, the stage that you launch a rocket, build a rocket, build satellites all the way down to the downstream applications, the actual data being used for uh, various environmental, economic, logistical purposes. When I designed that map and it was published and we started seeing that being used all across the industry, you know, it really became like an industry standard uh, from other funds to ESA to consulting companies who are involved in space. It really, it, it was very satisfying because, you know, a piece of content that I had created was being used to guide people, to give people a, a bit of an insight into what the landscape of all of this is. And this, this is such a nascent industry. It's only been, new space really has only emerged since around 2010. And so to be one of the people to have drawn out more or less what this ecosystem looks like was great. And hopefully it's, it's allowed people to do better investment. Hopefully it's allowed startups to identify gaps, identify opportunities, gaps in the market where they could uh, maybe develop something. And hopefully it also gets people more aware and excited about, about this rising uh, industry. Because, you know, I think 
the value of producing visuals, infographics, videos, and so on, I think is highly underrated. And I think once you reach out to the public with this kind of material, it's much more easy for them to get an intuitive sense of like, oh, I see that's what's going on. That's the level of opportunity that we're talking about. And, you know, that's very exciting. And I want to be a part of this and I want to support this, whether politically or economically or otherwise. That's amazing. I mean, especially this idea about you creating something that guides and helps people in the industry, but also charting your journey as we have through this conversation. I mean, essentially right now you're being somewhat of a pioneer in this kind of new space economy. Just looking back in this journey that you've done, you know, you you started off as a law student and now you're here today talking about the space economy. I was watching just before I interviewed a lecture that you gave as part of ESA about the new space economy and the ventures that are being done there. You've got quite an inspirational story here that really shows the multitude of pathways out of a law degree. Yeah. For people who might feel that they're in a sort of legalistic straitjacket with corporate law or a barrister, but they don't really feel that that's for them. Looking back at your journey, what were the skills or what were the things that you found quite helpful in trying to jump ship? So as a law student, this path that I've taken certainly didn't seem like an option. And I think that's partly because of, you know, with universities and law societies, all the careers events and so on that are held. The focus is very much on you either become a solicitor or a barrister, or, you know, at most you go into like consulting or banking if you're not looking to practice straight as a lawyer. But there isn't much attention given to really real alternative paths, things that are completely or at least seemingly completely unrelated to law. Um, And especially not areas which involve heavily technology and futuristic themes, let's say. And so I really did have to branch out and explore different modules, societies, events to get an idea of what possibilities were out there. So I think the one advice I would give is probably exercise some diversity in your experiences, whether this means taking non-law classes as your optional modules, as I did at LC in the philosophy of science, to widen your horizons, or getting involved in student societies, not just the law society, but also the entrepreneurs, technology, politics, arts, philosophy, because you never know what will inspire you. You never know which strand you will find and catch on to and actually find yourself facing down an entirely new path that is more beautiful, more inspirational, and a better fit for you than you could have imagined. And also the same goes for internships and for careers. You know, it's good to try out, as I did, uh, different types of industries. I did the law summer scheme, but I also did a year or two uh, in venture capital now on the public side. And who knows, you know, this might not even be a final type of destination that I have. Maybe this is just another stepping stone in the journey. But it's good to consider, I think, not immediately entering one very defined path. Like, okay, now I'm going to become a professional lawyer and then maybe we'll see what happens. Um, I think it's better to keep your options open in your early years if you're not sure about becoming, let's say, a solicitor or a barrister. And to really to explore, to read, to learn, talk to people, try to build a vision of who you want to be, what kinds of things you want to do, even on a daily basis, right? It's not because a job is not just like the title and the general activities. It's every minute of every hour of the working day. What kind of stuff do you actually want to be doing? You know, actually sit down and think about that and have some kind of reflection over which kinds of futures you want to be considering. If you're really thinking about going into something like I did uh, at the European Space Agency or other related high-tech areas, I think a few things that are really useful are gaining a systems thinking perspective, really being able to see things from all layers, from all different emergent properties and so on, building a high-level understanding of technologies, so studying a bit of physics, a bit of engineering, a bit of maths, 
being able to at least on a conceptual level understand why machine learning is is you know uh, su- such an important thing. For example, if you want to go into that, or why you know rocket engine configurations need to be a certain way, what the limitations are, without necessarily having to become an engineer yourself, but you know getting that intuitive understanding at least so that you can engage with this area without feeling like you are unqualified. And then also, of course, it's always good to have a bit of commercial awareness, which is a term that they... Um, a very infamous term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe overuse a little bit um, <laughs> in undergraduate law. But they're right to some extent. It's good to have that intuitive understanding of how business works, of how startups operate, of what investors are looking for, some microeconomics, how do markets work, how do you start a company, all of these things. And you know, also policy, because these are things that are frameworks for no matter what you do, they're going to have some effect on you. Just like the regulatory environment, the business environment is always going to have some influence on where you go. And I think the more familiar you get with these different systems that exist around you, the more easily you can step back and be like, this is where I want to be in this cluster of systems. And that is the kind of activity that I want to be doing. Wow. That was a comprehensive, in-depth answer that I think, I think our listeners will very much appreciate. <laughs> I'm glad. Looking back, we touched on this maybe a bit before, your LLB today, the toolkit that you developed back then, do you still kind of use it today or do you feel that it's kind of rusted over time? When it comes to the actual toolkit, when it comes to the mental models, the conceptual models, when it comes to the logical rigor, when it comes to the understanding of what evidence means, the understanding of how relative concepts like justice and fairness can be, all of these more general conceptual abstract layers of what it means to be a legal mind, I think I do use quite a lot, actually, uh, no matter what I'm doing. Even if I'm just communicating with an external partner, there will always be some aspect of this way of thinking that I gathered through my lawyers that I still do put into practice. This also includes things like balancing different interests. You know, when you, when you study law, you start understanding that there isn't really a right answer to where the balance is. You can say that, you know, oh, it's worth sacrificing the economy for this much environmental protection or this much labor rights or so on. But there's always an argument to be made. And that's really the fundamental basis of law is that you make the best arguments that you can. And then you decide based on either standards or based on, you know, a a judge's guidance, what the the right balance uh, stands at. And that's something that's good to know in life. You know, there isn't necessarily your opinion being like the right balance. You will have different considerations, different conflicting viewpoints, Always you'll have conflicting interests no matter what decision you're making, especially if money is involved. And it's good to be able to approach this with with a legal mindset and step back and try to look at it objectively and try to pick the best approach uh, that works for society, that works for for also for your interests and that works for the position that you are in um, at that time. Now, as a typical fun question round I like to have in these interviews, (laughs) what's the one subject in the LLB that you hated with a passion? Oh, if you really have to do this to me. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, open to multiple. If you, if you want to <laughs> just pick a handful, you're more than welcome to. Uh, these are memories that I'd repressed very deeply into my, into my <laughs> conscious of my psyche. <laughs> no, but, but in all seriousness, um, <laughs> for me, even though it had some very interesting uh, conceptual aspects, memorizing the statutory and case law elements of property law, of land law, um, was not something I would describe as a fun pastime. Um, <laughs> again, I loved the, you know, the, the philosophical debates uh, within those areas, but actually sitting down and you know, doing the dry legal reading and 
uh, going over page over page of he said this, she said that, this judge disagreed, this professor gave like a list of 12 reasons why he disagrees, but then it was completely rejected. All of this back and forth discussion between academia and, and uh, jurisprudence and so on, it felt like a little, a little much in terms of the amount of detail that we went into. But looking back, you know, I survived. And uh, sometimes it's good to go through that process of rigor because you understand what it really takes to have an in-depth understanding of an area. And you gain a new respect for experts. You gain a new respect for people who have dedicated their lives to a certain field, even if it's a field that you're not interested in. Some might say tax law, for example, <laughs> or perhaps, you know, the biology of uh, blue-backed beetles. Uh, no matter what it is, you know, you, you gain new respect for people who, who have dived into so much detail to really produce the most rigorous understanding possible um, of that field, because we depend on those people for policy decisions. And for example, right now with the COVID situation for very important decisions to be made uh, about public policy when dealing with crises. And so, yeah, that was probably the one, the one that I wasn't a huge fan of. But for the most part, I enjoyed a, a lot of the others. I would also add on maybe some aspects of criminal law were, were borderline traumatizing. Uh, <laughs> very graphic explanations of certain cases. Um, sometimes even- R.V. Brown. <laughs> That's right. Perhaps a niche reference. I don't know. <laughs> Not for our law listeners. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes even enactments by, by very enthusiastic professors, which are scarred deeply into my mind. But, uh, you know, a, ve- a very fun degree, nonetheless, I would say, uh, if you're into that kind of stuff. <laughs> a, very, a, a very comprehensive yet diplomatic answer there, Bartu. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for, for coming on. If people want to kind of reach out to you and, and ask questions about kind of, you know, all things space or, you know, jetting off from the legal profession, how can they, how can they reach you? Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, I would love that. Uh, especially if there's anyone who's thinking about, you know, these pathways and wants to have some advice um, or anything, if you're interested in space in general. Um, I would say probably you can either find me on LinkedIn um, or you can reach out to me by email, which is uh, bartu.caligasi at gmail.com. So just my first name, dot last name at gmail.com. Um, yeah, be, uh, be happy to have a chat anytime. Fantastic. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you for having me on. Since the recording of this episode, Bartu has left the European Space Agency and is now working at Catapult, a space NGO right next door, still flexing his legal mindset in furtherance of the space economy. Now, I'd be curious to know what your most hated legal subject is. So send us a message with your choice and explanation why on one of our social media channels at LegalTea.uk or our email hello at LegalTea.uk. We'll look over the responses and we'll showcase the best ones at the beginning of our next episode. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Special thanks to our unsung heroes, Clara Herberg, for editing and producing the episode. Andrew Wardell for scripting the show notes and blog post, and Matt Gedrich for the absolute banger of a theme song. Till next time.